I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the Gospel of John. Our text is John eighteen twenty-eight through nineteen sixteen. Peter has denied him. All the rest have scattered. Jesus continues the road to the cross alone. He goes meekly as a lamb to the slaughter, but meekness is not the same thing as weakness. Moving from the Jewish arrest and interrogation to a Roman trial, John continues to bring out the theme of Jesus' sovereign control over events as they unfold. Jesus' meekness comes only by the veiling of great power and authority. I'm in debt to my colleague Nolan Sharp for helping me see the honor-shame dynamic in this trial before Pilate. In the sociological sense, honor and shame are bestowed by culture. You receive honor through societal affirmation of your achievements and shame through failure in the eyes of the community. Jesus encounters numerous honor-shame tests during his ministry. In our lesson on the woman caught in adultery, we recognize the motive of those who brought the woman to Jesus had nothing to do with justice or morality. They didn't care about the woman or what she'd done. Their objective was to trap Jesus by presenting him publicly with a no-win situation. To advise her release would be to go against the law of Moses. To call for her death would be to go against the law of Rome. Either way, Jesus would lose honor as a rabbi. Jesus seemed trapped until he turned the tables on those who came to trap him by challenging them to pick up stones and execute her. The question of who should pay taxes is another well-known example of an honor-shame duel. You know, to encourage payment of taxes is to sympathize with Rome. To go against paying is to oppose Rome. So failing to detect and avoid the trap would result in the loss of public honor. Refusing to answer or answering wrongly would shame Jesus. Even if his opponents didn't succeed in getting Jesus in trouble with the authorities, they could still win the honor-shame duel by causing Jesus to lose prestige among the people and among his followers. But they never won. Jesus always came out on top. In this case, he said, bring me a coin. Whose picture's on the coin? Caesar. Well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Jesus always comes out with his honor intact. Honor and shame are at play in this story of Jesus' trial before Pilate, but it's not a duel between two parties. The honor-shame struggle is primarily between the Jewish leaders and Pilate. Jesus, the third party, is assumed the loser already. He's the one on trial. He's lost. He has no power in this situation. Quickly in the dialogue, we recognize tension between the Jews and the Roman governor. The Jews stand outside in spiritual superiority, while the Roman continually bullies them with reminders of his superior political authority. From the honor-shame perspective, we're to ask ourselves, who comes out on top when the trial's over? Who will be judged as having accrued honor? Who will be shamed? These questions are going to drive our observation of the passage. Also driving our observation is the recognition that this whole passage is organized chiastically, and there are nine parts to the chiasm. The beginning of the section has the Jewish leaders handing Jesus over to Pilate. The ending section is going to have Pilate handing Jesus back to the Jewish leaders. 
In the inner frames, Pilate goes out to the Jews, then Pilate comes back into the Praetorium, then Pilate goes out to the Jews again. That sequence is repeated. Pilate goes out, Pilate goes in, Pilate goes out. In the central section, Pilate enters the Praetorium and has Jesus beaten. Let's read the whole passage to establish our context, then we'll come back and go through the chiastic pattern part by part. This is John 18:28 to 19:16. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the Praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the Praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, "What accusation do you bring against this man?" They answered and said to him, "If this man were not an evil doer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews say to him, We're not permitted to put anyone to death, to fulfill the words which Jesus had spoken, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and put a purple robe on him, and they began to come up to him and say, Hail, king of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes him out to be a king opposes Caesar. 
Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he handed him over to them to be crucified. Let's go through each element of the structure, focusing on the interactions between the three parties involved, the Jewish leaders, Jesus, and Pilate. The introduction to the section is verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium, so they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. John mentions Jesus being taken from Annas to the current high priest Caiaphas, but he does not give us details of the Jewish trial. Matthew tells us Jewish lawyers produced false witnesses against Jesus, the very thing Jesus had challenged Annas to do, produce witnesses. The witnesses didn't prove to be credible. Nevertheless, the Jewish officials decided to ask Pilate for permission to execute Jesus. John doesn't give us any detail of that trial. He begins this section with the Jews bringing Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, the official residence and office of the Roman governor. And ceremonial Jewish law prevents the Jewish leaders from entering the governor's residence because to do so would render them unclean. They would not be able to participate in Jewish ceremony for 24 hours. The text tells us they would not be able to eat the Passover. That sounds like an odd comment, since the Passover meal was eaten one night earlier when Jesus was with his disciples, when he washed their feet. The Passover meal was then immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In Jesus' day, the term Passover became a way to refer both to the meal and to the week that followed, to the the week of unleavened bread. The whole period was referred to as Passover. And during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the priest ate the meal of daily sacrifice. So the comment here about not eating the Passover can't refer to the Passover meal. That's already passed. So most probably, it refers to the ceremonial eating that these priests would participate in that takes place every day during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, generally being called here Passover. The important point in this text, for the sake of John's narrative, is that the Jews have a ceremonial reason for not entering the praetorium. They stop outside to hand Jesus over. That ceremonial requirement sets up almost a, um, a comical nature to this trial, which forces this respected, powerful Roman governor Pilate to constantly go in and out of his own courthouse. He comes out to speak to the prosecutors. He goes in to speak to the defendant. He comes out again, he goes in again, and it just keeps going. And he first comes out to the Jewish leaders in the second element of the chiasm, verses 29 to 32. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the words which Jesus had spoke. 
signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Judaism was a recognized religion in the Roman Empire with certain privileges, particularly the right to maintain ceremonial observance. In spite of his pride as a Roman governor, and in spite of what he might have thought of Jewish religion, Roman law allowed the Jews to refuse to enter into Pilate's praetorium. And the historical record suggests that Pilate did not appreciate at all accommodating Jewish sensibilities. He's Roman. They should accommodate to him. Josephus writes that prior to this trial of Jesus, Pilate had provoked outrage by setting up the imperial standards in Jerusalem. The imperial standards depict Caesar, and because Romans recognize Caesar as divine, images of him in Jerusalem smack of idolatry to the Jews. Josephus also makes a charge that Pilate used funds from the temple treasury to build a new aqueduct in Jerusalem. And there was no love loss between Pilate and the Jewish leadership. Pilate walked this, this line between his own sense of Roman superiority and potential riot. In this case, Pilate submits to Jewish sensibilities, but he doesn't submit graciously. When Pilate asks for the accusation against Jesus, the Jewish officials, they're not gracious either. They give a snarky response. It's, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. In essence, they're saying, we've already tried him. We're just here for you to sign off on his execution. Let's get on with it. They don't want to validate Pilate's judicial role. They don't see any reason for a Roman trial. Not appreciating the response, Pilate pokes them where it hurts. Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. Pilate knows they can't get what they want without him. Rome holds power. Rome has the honor here. The Jews are the subjected people. They're subservient to the will of Rome, and being reminded of that is shameful. The Jews are permitted by Rome to hold court, to judge cases, to assign punishment, but with limits. They're not allowed to carry out a death sentence. They have to come and ask for permission from the governor. Everybody knows this, but Pilate makes them say it. He makes him say, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. Probably feeling an affront that these Jewish leaders would not come into his court, and certainly not appreciating their response when he asks about the accusation, Pilate bullies them into admitting their dependence on Rome. John points out that this historic dynamic leads to the death foretold by Jesus. The Jews would have stoned him for blasphemy if the death penalty were in their power. But three times in this gospel, Jesus has said the Son of Man must be lifted up. And since the Jews don't have power to execute a death sentence according to their law, it must be carried out by Rome's permission in the way that Rome chooses to carry it out. Jesus will not be stoned by Romans. He will be crucified. He will be lifted up, just as he said. He will be as the serpent lifted on a pole, as in Numbers 21.8, cursed by hanging on a tree, as in Deuteronomy 21.23, and pierced through for our transgressions, according to Isaiah 53.5. God is, God is the one in control here. 
Pilate decides not to just trust the word of these Jewish officials. He's not just going to give them what they want. So we have Pilate going back into the praetorium to question Jesus himself in verses 33 to 38a. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? At some point it was told to Pilate that Jesus claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, the King of the Jews. He heard that accusation. And when Jesus asked Pilate whether this was his own idea or whether it comes from others, Pilate responds as though the designation King of the Jews is an accusation. I didn't accuse you. Your own people delivered you over. What have you done? It's a practical question. Pilate wants to know whether Jesus has started to arm followers, or he's attacked Roman sympathizers, or done any politically or militarily suspect act. Interestingly, this gospel was written by John, and John's purpose is to show us the signs that Jesus did so that we might believe that he truly is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what Jesus has done. He's done miracles. But but Pilate is asking, he's assuming that there, there must be some criminal activity here somewhere. That's what he needs to judge. Jesus distinguishes his actions from the actions of a typical political ruler. He doesn't deny that he's a king. He, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Even though Jesus uses the terminology of kingdom, there is something fundamentally different about his kingdom and the kingdoms of the world. His one example is that his followers would fight if he were a worldly king, but they do not fight. And he stopped Peter from fighting in the garden. Put away your sword. Jesus is not attempting to establish a nation with an army and a political system. And this is one of the ways the new covenant is very different from the old covenant. The old covenant included civil law for the organization of a political society on earth. Israel was intended to be a geopolitical reality organized according to Mosaic law. God granted land to Israel. Their first major act after receiving the Mosaic covenant was to go in militarily and secure the land that God had given them. The new covenant doesn't include any criminal or civil law that we find in the old covenant. The church is not intended to be a political government. The reign of Christ is to spread in the hearts of men and women through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The commandments of the new covenant focus on our moral behavior, our relationships with each other, our worship. We are to have an effect on government and society. That's, it's not supposed to just be our individual private behavior. It's our behavior in society. But we're not to be a political body. We influence the political bodies in our culture, but the church is not a political body. 
Jesus doesn't, we can't go on much more than that from here. Jesus doesn't develop that idea, but his words establish a principle that we have to consider as we move forward in the new covenant. This is a new wineskin, and it's, it's distinct from the old. When we say kingdom, we don't mean what we meant when we said kingdom of Israel. This is a spiritual kingdom. In his conversation with Pilate, his words deny a claim of sedition against Rome. He is the king of a spiritual kingdom. His kingdom will spread, but he's not raising an army to overthrow Rome. You know, much to the chagrin of so many of his followers who were hoping that was what he's about, it's not what he's about. Jesus has acknowledged obliquely that he's a king. Still, consistent with his practice through his ministry, we notice that he doesn't take for himself the title of king. Pilate has to press the question, so you are a king? Jesus affirms that he's a king, but still without directly saying it. Um, He doesn't say, I am a king. Yes, I am a king. Instead, he puts the declaration back into Pilate's mouth. You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. This doesn't sound like seditious politics to Pilate. Uh, it, It sounds like very much like religion. Now, he's not able to hear the voice of Jesus. As a pragmatic politician, he responds to Jesus' claim about truth, and he just says, what's truth? What is truth? And it sounds like a conversation ender for Pilate. You know, he doesn't want to go there with a Jew. Jesus has taught about himself, as we see through the Gospel of John, he is the truth. And it's one of the audacious claims that Jesus makes that we've been encountering in John. It's the, it's a claim of divinity. To understand reality as it truly is, we have to begin with Jesus. If you don't have Jesus at the center of your worldview, your worldview is fundamentally flawed from the very beginning. And Jesus is he's not speaking in the abstract. He's speaking of concrete objective truth. His words are spiritual, but they're not theoretical. The spiritual truth Jesus speaks about profoundly affects both our hope for a real eternal future and also every area of our life that we live in here and now, our personal life and our communal life. It's all affected by recognizing that Jesus is the source of truth. It changes how we speak and how we think and how we behave. But, but this would be way too much for Pilate at this moment. He's, he's concerned with just figuring out, are, are you uh, some kind of rebel I need to be concerned with? And when it goes towards the spiritual and the religious, Pilate ends it. His response, what is truth, could be coming from a philosophical turn of mind. You know, Pilate's familiar with the religious disagreements between Roman and Jew. He's also aware of the different Greek philosophical schools. You know, he could have some kind of conversational truth if he wanted to. I imagine for him, what is truth is less philosophical, but more pragmatic. He's a politician ruling an unwieldy Roman possession. Truth is what it needs to be to get the job done. He, he's not interested in pursuing this line of thought with Jesus. So he ends the conversation. What is truth? Ironically, at the moment he asked the question, truth is standing on trial right in front of him. Pilate doesn't see it. He can't hear it. He's done with this trial, and he goes out to tell the Jews so. This is 1838b through 40. 
And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Jesus wasn't tripped up by Pilate's questioning. He didn't incriminate himself. And Pilate affirms what we already know. There's no guilt in him. But instead of just letting Jesus go, it seems that Pilate can't resist poking at the Jewish leaders again by asking, Would you like me to release the king of the Jews? It's, it's meant to antagonize them. Pilate latches on to this idea that Jesus is king of the Jews, and he enjoys that it antagonizes um, these, these, these religious people who think they're superior to him. And he's going to refuse to let it go. He's going to, all the way to the cross, he's going to put a sign on the cross that says, King of the Jews. Because he's just enjoying pushing this in the face of these officials. Well, the Jews refuse Jesus. They don't want Jesus. And they ask for the release of a thief, a robber. Uh, The word means more than it probably sounds to us. And we see that in the other Gospels, which indicate that Barabbas was involved in um, kind of murderous sedition of Rome. His name's highly ironic. If you've, have you thought about what Barabbas means? Bar means son of. Abba, you know what Abba means? Father. Barabbas means son of the father. So imagine this. Pilate gave the Jews a chance to set free the king of the Jews, who actually truly is the king of the Jews. They reject Jesus, the true king, and instead secure forgiveness for a rebellious murderer. The murderer's name is, ironically, son of the father. The true son of the father is condemned, and in the end, this one that is handed over unjustly is the one who's going to secure forgiveness for the ones who refuse to secure it for him. Now, Pilate has created a problem for himself. He wanted to release Jesus. He could have released Jesus, but he couldn't resist antagonizing the Jewish leaders once more by asking, would you like me to release your king? And when they say no, their rejection of Jesus prevents Pilate from releasing him. So now he's, he's put himself in a corner. Now he's got to keep Jesus. He's, he's not ready to execute Jesus, so he has him beaten. And this is 19, 1 to 3. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him, and they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. The soldiers don't just beat Jesus, they shame Jesus. They're clueless that their mockery is in another ironic recognition of Jesus' true identity. The crown of thorns, the purple robe, the cry, Hail, King of the Jews. They're they're all befitting the true king of heaven, who's given himself over to be executed by men for the sake of men. They violently and cruelly attempt to shame Jesus, but is Jesus shamed? He's only shamed if we accept the attempts of Romans and Jews to do so. When we consider the words and behavior of Jesus to this point, you know, what has he said, what has he done, we see one who calmly maintains his honor in the face of persecution. He has brought no shame on himself. With the beating of Jesus, Pilate considers his duty done. He goes back out to inform the Jews. 
This is 19, 4 to 7. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. There's an odd juxtaposition here of Pilate sustaining Jesus' honor by declaring, I find no guilt in him. And then right beside it, the shame imposed on Jesus by the crown and the robe. You know, you find no guilt in him, but he's standing here bloody and beaten with a, a crown of thorns and a, and a torn robe on his body. Pilate's behold the man may have been meant to point out the punishment Jesus had undergone, as though Pilate is saying, here, I've whipped him. Behold, that should be enough. Look at him, bruised and bloody before you. You know, we can be done. You brought him to me, I, I beat him, that's it. However, whether it was intentional or unintentional, the crown and the robe may have been just antagonized the Jews further. It's, it's as though Pilate is saying, as one of Rome saying, Behold, this is how we treat the king of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders respond by sticking to their single-minded objective of eliminating Jesus. It just stirs them, and they just they cry out all the more for crucifixion. Pilate wants the matter over, but again, Pilate pokes back at the Jews, telling them to crucify Jesus on their own, knowing that they're impotent to do so. And the Jews answer, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be son of God. And that, that comment strikes home with Pilate. He, he's afraid. So he goes back into the praetorium. He needs to think this through. This is 19, 8 to 12. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. The text says Pilate is more afraid, not just that he's afraid, he's more afraid. Apparently, there is underlying unease that John has not reported to us. We know from the other Gospels that Pilate's wife had a dream and warned him not to have anything to do with this Jesus. The Jews commented just now that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and that seems to stir this unease that Pilate already feels. It it makes him afraid. And by that, Pilate loses honor. He's the Roman governor. And he is, he is trying this poor Jewish rabbi, and yet he's the one who's afraid. Jesus shows no fear. And his fear motivates him to question Jesus further. Pilate's now not so dismissive of Jesus' claims to a spiritual kingdom. He asks, where are you from that you claim to be son of God? Where are you from? When Jesus refuses to speak, Pilate makes a claim to authority. You don't speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? 
Jesus is not afraid. Jesus remains calm and in control, and he tells Pilate, you only have authority because God has allowed you to have authority. And we, we can remember the garden when a cohort of Roman soldiers came to arrest Jesus and fell to the ground at the declaration of the name, I am. There is Jesus is in control here, and he's submitting to the authority of Pilate, but that's an authority that Pilate gets from God. Interestingly, Jesus indicates that the guilt of the Jewish leaders is greater than Pilate's guilt. Pilate will still be held responsible. God uses evil to bring about good, but still he punishes evil for the evil that was done. An example from the Old Testament that stood out to the prophet Habakkuk was God's use of wicked Babylon to punish Judah. That doesn't seem right, and it wasn't right. God used Babylon to bring about justice for Judah, but then Babylon, after carrying out its role in an evil way, was punished. And the Bible holds these truths to be compatible. You know, first, God is sovereign in all things, even able to use evil to bring about good. And second, people are still accountable for their actions. Pilate's action is going to lead to salvation for the world. That does not absolve Pilate. He is participating in the condemnation of an innocent man. The Jewish leaders, however, are charged with greater responsibility, greater sin. They are the stewards of Israel. They know the prophecies of the Messiah. They should be able to see that Jesus is fulfilling those very prophecies that they have memorized, but they refuse to see, and they're blinded by their desire to hold on to their position of authority and their their view of Jewish religion. They don't want to hear what Jesus has to say. They refuse to give up their stewardship to the rightful king. The Jewish leaders continue to press their accusation, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. They know what to say to a Roman governor. They're they're speaking in his terms. Pilate comes out one last time, bringing Jesus with him. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king! So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. The day here is called the preparation for the Passover. Some have thought this creates a chronology problem, and it does if you interpret the day of preparation as the day before the Passover meal because that meal was celebrated on the previous day, as reported in John 13. So that would be a conflict. The the timing doesn't work out if you designated this to be the day before that meal. But that would be a curious use of the term day of preparation. We actually don't don't have that in the Bible, and we don't see it in extra-biblical writings about the Passover. The day before Passover is not called the day of preparation anywhere, as, as far as we know. Um, we have a record of the term being used, though. It's a, it's a very common term, and the day of preparation is the day before the Sabbath. And the perceived problem can be resolved by, as we did the earlier problem about eating the Passover, if we understand Passover to indicate not only the Passover meal, but the whole Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the Passover becomes the meal plus the next week. And since that feast lasts a week, it always includes one Sabbath, Um, The dating of Passover is not like our Easter that always occurs on Sunday. It's like our Christmas that occurs on a certain date. You know, December 25th can be any day of the week. 
It just year to year it changes. So also the Passover meal was uh, designated by a specific date in a specific month. And so the day of the week changes with with every year. Every Passover is on a different day. A Sabbath would occur sometime during that week. Some some years it's earlier, closer to the Passover meal. Some weeks it's it's later. But there's always a day of preparation during the Passover time. That's the day of preparation before that Sabbath that occurs during Passover. And it's always Friday. The day of preparation is always Friday because Sabbath is always Saturday. And this is how we know Jesus was crucified on a Friday, because he was crucified on a day of preparation, and his body needs to be taken down before the beginning of Sabbath. Pilate pokes again the Jews one last time. Behold your king! And angry at Pilate and fixated on their aim, they respond, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate asks, Shall I crucify your king? And then listen to how the the priests answer, We have no king but Caesar. The leaders of Israel deny their king. They deny Yahweh. They deny the Messiah. We have no king but Caesar. And though Jesus is on trial, the Jewish prosecutors just incriminated themselves. We we have to stand a moment in silence, hardly believing, did they just say what I heard them say? We have no king but Caesar. Did that just come out of the mouths of these Jewish stewards over God's people? We have no king but Caesar. Shame. Shame. By the end of this trial, Pilate is shown to be afraid, unwilling to act justly on his repeated claim to find no guilt in Jesus, but he doesn't do anything about it. He's afraid, but he's impotent. He's shamed. And the Jewish leaders are shown to be hypocritical in their their single-minded crusade against Jesus. They go so far as to reject the sovereign rulership of Yahweh over their nation, and they claim Caesar just to get what they want, to, to get Jesus crucified. Only Jesus maintains his honor throughout even though there's this attempt to severely shame him. In the middle of the section, he's beaten, he's robed, he's slapped, and a a crown of thorns is put on his head so that society is doing all they can do to shame him. But we look at what he says, and we look at how he behaves, and we look at his control throughout, and we see who's in charge. Nevertheless, he, he does allow the injustice to continue. He's not going to halt the road to the cross. He continues on. And our concluding verse is 1916. So Pilate then handed him over to them to be crucified. Pilate stamps the death order, and he hands it over, giving Jesus back into the hands of the Jewish leaders. They got what they came for. And Jesus continues on to the cross alone. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of the Gospel of John, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.